Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Has any of you ever heard of the Jesus Storybook Bible? Anyone ever heard of the Jesus Storybook Bible? Hands up. Yeah, maybe if you're kids, you may have heard of it. I think we've got, is there a picture behind? I'm not sure if the PowerPoint is going to work today, but there is a picture of it. Um, One of the things my five-year-old son, Max, likes to do before bed is he loves to watch one of the Jesus Storybook Bible videos on YouTube. Now, don't judge me. I don't read the book. I just show the videos. So um, that's what I do. But basically, it's a series of about 50 short little videos based on the Jesus Storybook Bible that go through the story of the Bible. And Max's favorite one, about two or three weeks ago, his favorite one of those videos to watch was the video where Jesus dies on the cross, which basically meant every evening as I was putting Max to bed, he'd be like, I want to watch a video. Which one do you want to watch? The one where Jesus dies on the cross. It's like, again, you've watched it 10 evenings in a row. Like, you've got to know what happens now. No, I want to watch it again. So for two weeks ago, for about 10 evenings in a row, we would watch Jesus, the video about Jesus dying on on the cross. And... um, Basically, I'd get the video up, and we'd start watching it, and about halfway through the video, every time, Max would basically come, and he would say, Dad, is he dead yet? I was like, no, he's not dead yet. And then, like, 10 seconds later, Dad, is he dead yet? I was like, no, Jesus is not dead yet, no, no. About 10 seconds later, is he dead yet? I was like, no, Max, for the fourth time, he is not dead yet. He's still talking on the cross. He's talking. He's talking to people on the cross. He's not dead yet. Oh, okay, okay, okay. He's not dead. And then eventually comes the part in the video where Jesus says, it is finished, and he dies. To which Max replies, what's finished? I was like, well, Max, you know, Jesus' mission to die on the cross for the sin of the world, that's what's finished. Max said, oh, okay, right. And then the video ends, and he always, every time the video ends, Max always turns the phone off and hands it back to me. So he turns the phone off this one time, and he hands it back to me, um, and uh, he gives me the phone, and uh, he basically, he says, Daddy, he didn't stay dead, did he? And I was like, no, son. He rose three days later. He's like, yes. So I was like, yes. Yes, Max. Fantastic. So it was very encouraging when he said that. But that's such an important thing, such an important part of the story, isn't it? Because by coming back to life again, Jesus showed that he had defeated the two most powerful forces in the world, which is sin and death. And by doing so, he proved that he reigns supreme over everything and everyone. Amen? Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to talk about today, the fact that our God is alive and that he reigns supreme. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 21 to 39, which basically shows us exactly that. It shows us that our God, the living God, is supreme. Now, the the story we're going to look at is, it's a very well-known story. I'm sure many of you may have heard it. It's where the prophet Elijah basically sets up a contest between God on the one hand and a false god called Baal on the other to see who the real god was. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of this story, spoiler alert, you may want to close your ears or whatever right now, but um, God wins, 
Baal loses, okay? Just so don't ruin it for you there, so you don't have complaints. But that's what happens. The contest shows without any doubt that Yahweh, the living God, is supreme and that he is the real God. So that's what happens. So we're going to read the passage. A little bit of background before we read this passage, 1 Kings 18, 21 to 39, which may appear behind me. Is it not? It's not working. Okay, it's fine. Um, that is absolutely fine. Okay, so basically around 60 years before this story, King Solomon died. That was the king of Israel, and there was a power struggle. Israel split into two kingdoms. Um, you had in the north, we had the kingdom of Israel. In the south, we had the kingdom called Judah, which included Jerusalem. And then over the next 200 years, you had in Judah, there were some good kings and some bad kings, kind of some who followed God's laws and some who didn't, kind of half and half. Then in the northern kingdom of Israel, all of the kings were bad. Some of them were really bad. And one of the worst kings in the northern kingdom of Israel was King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, they were nasty pieces of work, both of them. Not only did they worship false gods and idols, but they also led the people astray to do the same. And if that wasn't bad enough, they had all God's prophets, and, all God's prophets executed apart from one guy who they couldn't quite get their hands on. And his name was Elijah. Yes, they couldn't quite get their hands on Elijah. Now, Elijah had some guts. Elijah goes up to Ahab and says that because you're so evil, there's going to be, there won't be any more rain on Israel until he says so. That's what he says to Ahab. Now, water in the Middle East is a big deal. So this was a big thing. Then Elijah leaves Israel and then hangs out with a widow and her son in a place called Zarephath, which is north of Israel. After three years, he returns to Israel. And by this time, there's a famine in the land. There's obviously no rain. There's a famine. And he appears, Elijah appears to Ahab. Now, it's a pretty prickly exchange between them when they meet, to say the least. You know, so Elijah meets Ahab. Ahab's like, oh, you troubler of Israel, what are you doing here? Elijah's like, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the one who's disobeying God. You're the one that all this problem has, has come from. So they have this kind of back and forth a bit. And then Elijah's then like, okay, well, let's sort this out then. Let's have a, let's have a contest to settle who's, who's the real God once and for all. So Elijah suggests they have it on Mount Carmel, which is a mountain on the coast in northern Israel, which I don't know if it's going to appear behind me, but anyway, um, but I've been there. It's very nice. And Mount, Mount Carmel literally means fertile garden because it saw heavier rainfall than any, anywhere else in the country. And as a result, it became one of the most important worship places for the storm god Baal. That's what Baal was. He was the storm god, which is why, as we'll see, Elijah needs to build an altar on Mount Carmel but the prophets of Baal don't need to build one because they already had one there, because they already worshiped there. So Ahab agrees to the contest and assembles 450 prophets of Baal and also 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel against Elijah. Okay, so it's 850 to 1. That's the odds here. But these 850 prophets plus Elijah are not the only people on the mountain. Like with anything like this, there's loads of people who also show up to watch this whole thing going on. So there was likely thousands of people on this mountain to watch this contest take place. So we're going to read the passage. It's 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 21 to 39. Um, it may appear behind us, and it may not, but um, I will read it anyway. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. So verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. 
But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the, God, of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bowl that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Now, interesting, the word translated here as traveling means literally withdrawing, which was a polite word back then for going to the toilet. So Elijah is pretty much taunting the prophets of Baal by saying, I think your God has gone for a poo. That's essentially what he's saying to them here. And then he also said, oh, well, maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. So he's taunting them. Verse 28, so the prophets of Baal, they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, spears as was their custom, until their blood flowed. They're really going for it. Midday passed, so they've been doing this for a while, and they, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And they were reading verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sails of wheat, which is about 11 kilograms. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and you have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Must have been pretty impressive. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So that's Elijah's God contest. Elijah's God contest has a clear winner. I think you'll agree. God wins. And I think, we can, I think we can all agree pretty convincingly, you know, fireball from heaven just blows everything up. And everyone's just like, yep, okay, that God's the real one. Yeah, we, we, we see that. There's no doubt about that. So there's a clear winner. But this morning, I, I just want to take some time before we, before we go back and, and worship again. And I just want to look at two things from this passage this morning. Firstly, who do we worship? Because that's what this passage is about. It's, about. it's about worship. Who do we worship? The real God or something else? And the second thing I want us to look at this morning is how do we worship? So who do we worship? How do we worship? So firstly, who do we worship? Which is what this story is all about. The reason Elijah asked God to do this miracle is so that the people will choose to worship him again rather than other gods. 
In verse 37, Elijah says, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. You see, Elijah wants people's hearts to be turned back to God so that they would worship him again, so that God would be the most important thing in their lives again. And that's what he wants of us too. Now, in our lives, like in this story, there's also a contest over who gets our worship. God is one option, but there are many other gods that we can worship too in our society. Now, I don't think many of us here are tempted to worship Baal. You know, I think his, uh, I think his, his time as a false god, he's kind of had his day, really. You know, I don't think that's a temptation for any of us. But it can be easy to fall into the temptation of worshiping other things as gods. Perhaps worshiping the God of comfort or the God of having a perfect home or the God of the perfect family or the God of the perfect body or a perfect job or the God of success or the God of having lots of money or the God of security for the future. That's a big one. Now, in themselves, there's nothing wrong with these things except when we squeeze God out of our hearts. When these things squeeze God out of our hearts, that's when they become wrong. And when they replace God as number one in our lives, that's when it becomes an issue. You know, it's so easy for our hearts to be drawn after other things, isn't it? So easy. Now, when it comes to worship, worship is simply our response to what we value most. Okay, now if my PowerPoint was working, it would say that in massive letters about four times, because basically I want to get that, but it's not working. Okay, so I'm going to have to say it here, right? Worship is simply our response to what we value most. Okay, say it back to me. Worship is our response to what we value most. Okay, this is us making up for PowerPoint, right? What's most important to us in life You can find that out. You can find out what's most important to someone by basically checking these three areas. Okay, again, this was going to come up in big letters. Firstly, how do you spend your time? Secondly, how do you spend your money? And thirdly, what do you worry about? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? And what do you worry about? If you follow the path of these three things, you will arrive at what you worship. And I'm just going to throw it out there for everyone. It may not be God. <laughs> and we're in church here. We're like, oh, you always It may not be God. And that might be a bit uncomfortable. But we all worship something. And you will find out what you worship if you follow the path of how you spend your time, your spare time, not what you have to do, you know, work and sleep. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, and what you worry about. Now, worshiping something other than God is rarely a sudden or rarely a conscious thing. Okay, it's not like we wake up one morning and think, oh, I think I'll worship my job, or I think I'll worship success. Or, it, it doesn't happen that way. Rather, it's, it's much more of a gradual thing of spending more and more of our time on something, spending more and more of our money on it, and spending more and more of our time thinking about it and worrying about it. It's a gradual thing. It creeps up. You know, last year, uh, we had the upstairs rooms in our house replastered. 
Looks way better, by the way. Really, look. I mean, it was awful before. I mean, I've never appreciated straight walls like I did before, but it's beautiful. Got new doors and carpet. Upstairs of our house looks a million times better than what it was. But just as we were getting the work done, I started thinking, you know what? I would love an extension. Oh, I would love an extension to our house. Man, we could move our kitchen out to the back. One of those open plan kitchens patio doors into the garden. We could have like a downstairs toilet. My wife's always wanted one of them. Just loads more room, a few extra, oh, be great. And I'm, and I'm thinking about it. I, realized, I started to think about it more and more. And then I started to daydream about it a little bit. And then I started daydream about it more and more and more. And I thought, oh, I could put this here and put that there. And I, thought, oh, I wonder what it would cost and all this kind of stuff. And, then, and, and I thought, I kept that. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But you know, when that all those thoughts started to grab hold of my heart. I had to check myself. I had to be like, Andy, hey, hold on here. What are you doing? What's the most important thing in your heart right now? And, and for me, when I realized what was happening, uh, what actually helped me to put things back in perspective was to remind myself of like Christians from history and what their vision was and what they lived for. Like people like Hudson Taylor, who just went to China and wanted to see people saved. And people like that really helped me to focus on them. And it helped remind me, okay, what do I really want in life? You know, do I want the kingdom of God to extend? Do I want to see people saved? Do I want to see people discipled, have their lives put back together? Do I really want an extension more than those things? And I'm like, no, I don't. So it was just really helpful to put things back in perspective. And that's what I had to do. But it was very interesting. I had to check my heart. Like, oh, what's happening here? What's going on here? Because it can really slowly creep up on us, worshipping other things. Now, this story that we've read is about God's people turning their hearts back to him in worship. And maybe for you, this is something you need to do today. You know, maybe for you, you're sitting here and thinking, you know what, my heart's been pulled in a whole load of different directions. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I want to be fully devoted to Jesus again. I want him to be number one in my life again. And if that's you, I think, I think that involves a few things. Firstly, it involves confession, saying sorry to God. Hey, God, I've, I've followed other things. I'm sorry. I think it involves surrendering yourself to God again. Say, God, I'm yours again. Do with me what you want. But... I think, I think coming back to God, it also involves possibly killing some stuff too. You don't expect to hear that in church, do you? The preacher telling you to kill stuff. But what's interesting is we read this passage, and it's lovely to read this passage, right? And, and, and it's really nice. I'm like, yeah, God wins. But just after this passage, Elijah basically has the people kill all the prophets of Baal, of Baal. And you're like, we don't normally put that in the passage we're preaching on because we're a bit like, oh, it's Sunday morning. People don't want to hear, you know, people getting killed and stuff. They get a bit squeamish about that kind of stuff. But that's what happens. But if you think about it, what happened? The people removed the things that led them to worship the false gods in the first place, the prophets. Now, you might think a bit harsh to us, but that's what they did. And maybe that's something that you need to think about doing too. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And oftentimes what we do is we don't put these things to death. Instead, we feed them, and we feed them. And I think the image here is is of 
I don't know if you've ever heard of like a, like a wild dog attack like someone and they attack them and they really injure them or like attack a young child or something and, and, and the child is really badly injured. Everybody agrees with a dog like that, you don't continue feeding a dog like that. You put it down. Everyone agrees, you put it down. That's what you do. You get rid of it. And I think, you know, for some of us, and this might be difficult to hear, for some of us, we've maybe got some things in our lives and, and we're feeding these things, but actually what we need to do is we need to kill them. And you do that by stop feeding them. And I feel like some of us here today, and for some of us here today, what turning your heart back to God looks like is basically killing a harmful habit in your life. Okay, pretty intense. <laughs> Come up for air. So just like in Elijah's time, not only were, are, are, there, are there other gods that we can worship, but uh, there are also, there's also pressure on us from our society to worship these other gods. And as believers, we're in the minority, just like Elijah was. He was the only prophet of God left back at that time. And you know what? I was thinking, Elijah could have been like, you know what, guys, I fancy an easy life. You know, this whole prophecy thing, it is hard work. My goodness, I am done with this. You know, he, he could have thought, if you can't beat him, join him, you know. Here, here are these prophets of Baal. They eat well. They eat at the queen's table, and there's a famine going on. They eat the best food, the best drink. They live well. They've got each other. They're respected. They're listened to. They have the ear of the king. And I just thinking, ah, oh, you know, he could have been thinking, look, here I am on my own, on the run. It would have been very easy for Elijah to give in for a quiet life, you know, to just give in and, and be like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to worship Baal. I'm just going to give in. Um, because it probably seemed like the whole world is against him. It could have been very easy for Elijah to do that. And, you know, I think it may feel like that for you in your, in your family life or your work life. You know, it can seem like you're the only one left living for God. And if that's you, I just want to say two things, all right? Firstly, you're probably not the only one left. I remember I was chatting with a guy recently from church, and he set up a little prayer group at his work, and he said, prayer groups are brilliant. They're a brilliant way of getting Christians to come out of the woodwork. You know, you, you work with someone for years, and then you set up a prayer group, and they come along to you, like, you're a Christian. I didn't know you are a Christian. This is great. Oftentimes, you think you're the only one. You may not be the only one. In Elijah's time, he wasn't actually the only one left. Obadiah, who was Ahab's chief administrator, was also a believer, and he had used his influence to secretly rescue and protect a hundred of God's prophets at that time, even though Elijah didn't know it. So Elijah wasn't on his own, and you may not well be on your own either. But also, I just want to say that if you, if you are the only Christian where you are, in your workplace or in your family, I just want to say, maybe God's put you there for a reason. You know, Obadiah was a follower of God where there weren't many others, but he was there for a reason to save the lives of a hundred prophets during this godless time in Israel. And perhaps you are where you are in your work life for such a time as this. So that may be the case. So that's the first thing I want us to see this morning, who we worship. We worship the living God. But secondly, I want us to briefly look at how we worship. Well, we see how they worship in the passage in verse 39. It says, when all the people saw what had happened, they fell prostrate, right? So they fell prostrate is not like they got on their knees. It was 
It was proper kind of prostrate. It was completely face down worshiping, okay? Now, Hannah's done a few little interesting things at the start. I, I, I'm not sure she's, she's brave enough to say, right, we're all going to worship God prostrate this morning on our face. Kind of hard to sing down there, isn't it? You don't get much, get much volume, especially on a day where we don't have the sound, yeah. But they, they fell down prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. It's not a very English response, is it? You know? Can't see, you know, nice English people doing that. Step up, step up her lip and all that, you know? Now, sometimes I think if this happened in England, it would have been a bit more like, you know, hands in your pockets. Wow, impressive miracle. <laughs> yes, the Lord, he is God. He is God indeed. You know, I, I, you know I'm, not, I'm, not really, I'm not really the expressive type. And besides, besides worship is what happens on the inside. It's all about what's on the inside. On the inside right now, I am worshiping the Lord. You want to see my heart right now. It's jumping for joy. It's all about what's on the inside. But all those people on the floor stretched out, crying out. Oh, come on, get a grip, guys. Relax. Take it easy. I think that's probably the vibe we would get if this happened in England. But this miracle did not happen in England. And it wasn't like that at all. These guys are all in. They see the miracle and all of them hit the deck immediately, sprawled out in worship. And, they're, and also, I think the thing I find, love about this is they're not just saying, the Lord is God. Yes, the Lord is God. You know, like a kind of a, an Anglican call and, retreat, call and repeat kind of thing. No, they're crying it out. The Lord is God, top of their voices. Now, as I said earlier, the thing I got you to repeat back to me, worship is simply our response to what we value most. What is worship? What we value most. And when we value God most in our lives, we will, no prizes for guessing, we will worship him. Now, worship is an inward heart attitude, yes, but it also has a close relationship to our physical bodies. You see, bowing and worshiping for the Israelites were one and the same thing. Okay, so the inward feeling of worship for them, like, yes, God, I want to worship you, and the physical manifestation of worshiping, bowing, went hand in hand. Okay, there's just no way they would have went, the Lord, he is God, and stood there with their hands in their pockets. That would have been completely nonsensical to them. Worship in the ancient world always involved your body. And we see this in the fact that one of the Hebrew words for worship in the Bible is the word yada, Y-A-D-A-H. And yada literally means to throw your hands in the air. That's what yada means. And you see, throwing your hands in the air back then was so much part of Hebrew praise and worship that they began to use the word for throwing your hands in the air to mean the same thing as worship. They just became synonymous. So it'd be like, let's worship. Hands up, same thing. That's just, that's just what it was. And you know, I feel like in Britain, we've changed it. You know, let's worship. Hands in pockets. It's, <laughs> it's like the opposite. Let's worship. All right, I'll get my coffee. You know, it's, it's, we've kind of, we've changed it. And I was just like, yes, worship. Let's go for it. You know, I was reading a, a psychology article recently, which makes me sound really smart, but it was very short and there was lots of pictures. But um, it talks about how our body posture affects us emotionally. And basically, what it was saying was, it's very difficult to be happy while frowning, you know, or it's very difficult to be sad while smiling. There's something in, in our body posture that affects us emotionally. That's what it was saying. What it was saying was that certain body postures open us up emotionally, and others close us down. You know, so arms open 
opens us up. You know, hunched over pockets closes us down emotionally. And that's what this psychology article was, was saying. I was like, oh, very interesting. So our body posture on the outside does affect our heart attitude on the inside when it comes to worship. And I think what that means is sometimes when we come to church, we're, you know, that we'll start singing some songs and we'll be there and like, oh, I'm not really feeling it today, you know? And, and you kind of wait till you feel it a bit, till you maybe, you know, put maybe a hand up halfway or, you know, do a little quiet clap. You don't want to be looking at you, but, you know, there's a way to kind of feel a bit of a, you know, a bit of a buzz before that. But, but actually, it's, it's about actually coming in, engaging when you don't feeling like, right, yes, we're going to worship. And actually, the worship comes in that way. And basically, all this just to say, when we worship together on a Sunday, let's take up a position in worship that reflects what we are singing, and it will enhance our worship together. You know, when we're singing, oh, praise Jesus. Wow, the great words. Let's sing it in, in a way that's worthy of those words. And you might even want to try. It's allowed. You might even want to try, like the ancient Hebrews, raising your hands. Because, you know, when we take an open posture in worship, our emotions open up too. You raise one hand, raise two hands, one halfway up, one half. In fact, you know, we're not judging anybody here, but it's, yeah, you can do that. You know, um, also, when we're expressive in worship, it's really encouraging for other people to see. Now, I may have shared this story before, but there was a guy who used to go to CCM Withington, which Luke and Rosalind and James and I used to be part of. And um, in worship time, he'd have his hands raised and he'd just be singing his heart out. And I remember saying to him one time, I said, look, mate, would, you know, when I watch you worship, it encourages me to worship. I'm like, wow, just inspiring to see him. So I said, you know what, from now on, sit on the front row at church, because I want people to see you worship, because I think it will encourage them too to worship. He was like, really? Are you sure? I was like, yeah, just sit in the front row. I was like, okay, fine. But being expressive in worship is also very encouraging for our worship leaders too. Okay, so I'm going to let you in on a secret. You may have never heard this before, but this, is, this may be new ground to some of us, okay? When our worship leaders are at the front leading us, it's not just you who can see them, but they can also see you. Mm-hmm. What do they see? Very interesting, isn't it? You know? <laughs> what do they see? When they can see some people really expressing themselves in worship, I mean, just at least singing the songs, looking like, yes, I'm engaged, it's so encouraging for them. And you know what? We owe our worship leaders a bit of help. You know, they've been singing on their own behind screens to people in masks for 18 months. That's like the definition of hard work. I mean, it really is. So actually, just to be expressing God is really helpful for our worship leaders. So let's ex- be expressive in our worship. But you know, the people that day, they, they saw a great miracle in that story we've talked about today. God triumphed over evil in a very public way, in a way that left no one in any doubt over who had won. But this story is just a foreshadow of an even greater victory over evil on another mountain in Israel, and that was Jesus' victory over sin and death on the cross. And the reason Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross was the same reason why God defeated the prophets of Baal so that the hearts of his people would turn to him. Only this time, that wouldn't just be a temporary thing. 
Because this time God would send the Holy Spirit, not just on some of God's people, as in the Old Testament, but on all of his people, everyone who would call on his name. In Ezekiel 36, 20, 26, love this passage. God describes this saying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And that's what God has done for us as his people. He's given us a heart of flesh. You know, Elijah and the, the people back then saw amazing stuff that day. You know, some of us might sit there thinking, oh, I'd love to have seen that happen. And I'd love to have seen, you know, the fireball and all the people go, ah, oh, Lord is God. But, you know, they would have traded it all in for what we have. You know, they would have traded it all in for what we have and what we know in Jesus. You know, as Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That would have blown their mind back then if they'd have known that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And that's what we have in Jesus, the living God who is supreme and who calls us to worship him.